to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And our scripture reading will be verse 16 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 47. So John chapter 5, verse 16 through 47. And so if you are there, I invite you to follow along as I read. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because, he, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. 
But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to Christ. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, having heard your word, we ask now that in these moments, as we reflect on them, may you open our eyes to see wonderful things that you'd have for us here in your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, any of anybody here, I know this is going to be a very old reference here. So a lot of kids maybe are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and I very rarely do this with like examples from TV shows, but how many of you older people grew up watching the TV show law and order? A few hands. Oh, this is always dangerous to use illustrations like this where, you know, only 25% of the people know, uh, but when I say law and order, do you immediately think, for those of you who've seen it, do you, how many of you immediately get the theme song going through your head, right? Dun, 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 you know. uh, there's a line that begins at every uh, law and order episode. In the criminal justice system, there are, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. I thought of that this week because as I'm reading John chapter 5, I couldn't help but think that John 5, in, in a way, reads a little bit like a legal drama, a law drama. And here's, here's what I mean. Let's remind ourselves of the context of John chapter 5. At the beginning of the chapter, John had, or Jesus had just uh, performed a miracle. He had healed uh, at the pool of uh, Bethsaida or Bethesda. Uh, where invalids would go to find healing because of the, the, the idea that as the water was stirred, people would go into the water and then they would be healed. And he healed a man who had been uh, an invalid for 38 years. The man does what Jesus says, takes up his mat, and he goes away and he walks away. And as John points out, this is the Sabbath, 
And so as the man is taking up his mat that Jesus told him to take up, and he's walking through Jerusalem, the Jewish religious leaders go, wait a second, you're violating the, the human traditions that we have on our interpretation of not doing work on the Sabbath. You're carrying a mat, and that's work. And of course, the guy doesn't know who Jesus is. Eventually, Jesus runs into him and has that encounter with him, and then he goes back and snitches on uh, on Jesus to the religious leaders. And that's the basis here of what the confrontation and how it begins right here in this chapter, at the beginning of this chapter. Jesus performs the miracle, but the, the whole subtext of the whole thing is, is what this miracle does in creating the initial controversy that Jesus has with the religious leaders. It's kind of the first major uh, controversy other than his cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. This is where they're now starting to kind of build their case against Jesus. And as a matter of fact, here it gives, that's kind of the, the description of the quote-unquote crime, that healing that we talked about last Sunday. And now these Jewish religious authorities now are building their case here against Jesus. They decide to persecute him. Notice in verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. So they have their first charge against Jesus is that he was promoting and encouraging and doing these healings on the Sabbath. But there's a second charge that develops as Jesus responds to them. Notice Jesus' response to them in verse 17. So apparently the Jewish religious leaders had gone from the man and now are confronting Jesus and Jesus answers them and he says, my father, my father is working now and I am working. Now this brings up violation number two. Not only were you encouraging things on the Sabbath, but now you've introduced a second violation. And notice what it is in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, first violation, but he was also even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This becomes now the beginning. That's the end of verse 18. So those are the details of the charges. He's breaking the Sabbath, and he's now going something that's far worse than that. He's now doing blasphemy, claiming equality with God. And we'll see several instances in John's gospel where this charge of blasphemy comes. With blasphemy comes the ultimate sentence, the death sentence, which is why in verse 18, they're wanting to kill him. Now, this is not a formal trial per se, but this is kind of the beginning. It's laying the groundwork for the trial that's going to come, that's going to ultimately lead to Jesus' crucifixion. The bulk of this chapter is Jesus' now defense. He's giving his, his defense to these charges that we saw in verse 18. And in the face of this uh, religious and legal investigation, uh, Jesus's defense kind of follows along the lines of two separate yet equally important lines of argument. And so let me give you those, those two lines of argument here, and this will serve as our outline for our uh, reflection today. The first one is Jesus's own testimony, and then the second is the corroborating witnesses to his testimony. Okay, here's the first two points. And then we're going to end, Lord willing, with the, the third reflections on some things here. 
So here's the two points to guide us in our discussion. This is all Jesus' defense, beginning in verse 19 all the way to 47. That's all Jesus speaking. If you have a red-letter Bible, you can see it's all red. And he begins with his own testimony to these charges. And so here's the testimony, Jesus' own testimony, verses 19 through 30. And uh, we could look at this, we can kind of see a couple of themes. There's, there's three themes that we could see happening in all of these. First theme is the son's relationship with the father. Part of his own testimony, and you could almost say it's, his, it's an admission of the claims. Jesus doesn't plead the fifth. He's willing to go ahead. Yes, I'm going to give you the charges. And here's, uh, I'm going to give my own testimony. And let me, uh, let Jesus is saying this. I'm establishing that I am the son because I have a special relationship with the father. Notice in verse 19, Jesus imitates the father. There's a family resemblance there. Verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. And whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So Jesus says, I, I'm, I'm imitating my father. The works that you see me do, I do because those are the works that the father does. Jesus obeys the father. Look at verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show you so that you will marvel. Jesus is obeying the Father, and the Father loves the Son. It's establishing what Jesus is doing, and his identity is grounded in his, his testimony to his own relationship with the Father. And that his works are an extension of the Father's works. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This is... Jesus is clearly echoing the works that he, the miracles he'd already performed thus far. In particular, the healing of the royal official's son while he was in Cana, from the official from Capernaum. And then as well, taking this invalid from 38 years and enabling him to walk again. And he says, I'm only able to do that because that's what the Father does. So Jesus is establishing right here at the beginning of his own testimony that this, his claims to who he is is grounded because he does indeed have a special relationship with the Father. He, in fact, is the Son. So the Son's relationship to the Father, notice what it says in verse 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. So the son's relationship with the father, and then you also have the son's authority granted by the father. The son's authority granted by the father. And in particular, this is the authority for judgment. Notice verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. See how Jesus is establishing an, uh, an inseparable connection between the work of the Father and the work of the Son. And he's saying that all of the judgment that the, the Father would have 
For sin and righteousness, all of it, is now handed down to the work of the Son. And because of that, Jesus, the Son, has special honor, honor on the same par as the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is establishing quite clearly the connection between these two. So the Son's authority is granted by the Father, and then the Son's gift of eternal life is from the Father. Through the Son. So whereas point number two there was about judgment, point number three here is about salvation. It's eternal life. We saw already, verse 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Or verse 24 and 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him, who has sent me, has eternal life. Eternal life is connected not just to hearing or believing the Father, but in believing, hearing, and believing the Son. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. He continues in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And I want you to notice here as we're reading these verses, notice hearing my voice, hearing my word, hearing and believing is connected here. Verse 24, he says that eternal life is conditioned upon hearing my word. So Jesus is saying, me as the Son. And then he makes it more explicit. He says, when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God. Jesus has just said he is the Son of God. And those who hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, will live. He goes on even further. Notice in verses 26 and 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Notice the hearing of the voice. Whose voice is that in verse 28? The Son of Man of verse 27. So Jesus is right here just claimed salvation is com- conditioned from the Father on listening to the voice of me, the Son, the Son of God, and I am the Son of Man. Now, how is this gift of eternal life of salvation received? Uh, my wife asked me this good question the other, uh, this last week as she was reading this. She goes, wait a second. So some who are in the tombs hear his voice come out. And as they come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to resurrection of judgment, that seems to suggest what, do, what does done good mean and done evil mean? Does this, is Jesus saying that works, that your good works leads to the resurrection of life? And my answer was, well, you have to understand, still the principle on 
on eternal life or judgment is based on righteousness. I mean, salvation is by grace doesn't change the rule of the game. It's still based on righteousness. But the scriptures teach us is that there's no one who is righteous, no one who does good. Well, then what is Jesus saying here? Well, I want you to point out the larger context and what Jesus kind of has in mind on this done good. What does he mean by done good here? It's connected to, remember, the resurrection of life is done good. What does done good mean? Well, 24, whoever hears my word and believes. Not saying faith is a good work, but in the context here, he's not saying that salvation is contingent upon doing good works. Salvation is contingent upon hearing the word of Jesus and believing him. Again, that you pass from death to life. You have eternal life. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. But all of this to say, what Jesus is establishing right here on his identity. He is the Son. The Son of God. Which entitles him to call God his Father. Not in the general sense that the Jews would say, you know, our Father. Jesus says, no, I am the Son, and the Father is my Father. So to the charge that he was calling God his own Father, Jesus is establishing right here through his own testimony, yes, that's my testimony. I'm taking the stand. I'm not pleading the fifth. That's who I am. But as I said uh, earlier, Jesus' defense here is following two separate yet equally important lines of argumentation. He starts with his own testimony, his own admission, but as an important principle, uh, legal principle, um, your own witness, your own testimony, as important as that is, is not by itself sufficient, right? Can you imagine what the trials would be like nowadays? You bring somebody in and they're like, you're accused of committing this crime. Did you do it? Nope. Case closed. Like, no, no, wait a second. You were, you're eyewitnesses. There's evidence. There's things like this. You, you can't go on just the, the word of the person who's being tried alone. And this is what Jesus establishes right in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So he now proceeds to give some other witnesses. He says in verse 32, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. We're going to see who he's referring to here in a moment. But I want you to notice here, from this point forward, um, and in English, it's all the same uh, Greek root words here, but when you see the word witness, and testimony or bear, bear witness or born witness, that's all the same word group, okay? So witness and testimony, you'll notice that here. So Jesus here gives four witnesses, four witnesses, corroborating witnesses. Um, and as, as a little aside, when I, when I study for uh, sermon preparations like this, I usually print out the text and, and I just make all kinds of notes and scribbles and 
you know, lines with questions and things like that. And then after I get an idea of what the passage is, I then, um, then I go to commentaries and I kind of check my work, right? And so I, I go, okay, how many witnesses are here? I count four. And then I go to one commentary and they, they count five witnesses and another commentary counted three, um, but some other commentaries counted four. So I, I'm going to go with the four. I'm like, I feel confident about the four. And then I go to uh, John MacArthur's commentary, which are more of like his sermons. And he had four and I was like, okay, <laughs> he had four. He saw the same four I did. And then I, uh, so I wrote my four down, and here, I'll just give them to you. John the Baptist is the first witness. Jesus' own works is the second witness. God the Father is the third witness. And the scriptures are the fourth witness. And I'm like, okay, not catchy, not clever, but those are my four. And I go to see what John MacArthur's are, and listen to his. The, four, the forerunner's witness, the finished works, the Father's word, and the faithful writings. Not only did he alliterate all four, he alliterated both words of all four. And I was like, that's why John MacArthur is John MacArthur, and I am me. Um, so here we go. There's the four. John, here's the four witnesses. John the Baptist, verses 33 and 34. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man... In other words, John is a man, there, there is a higher one, but let's start here. <laughs> Not that the testimony I receive is from a man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Why does he, what, what do you mean that you may be saved? Well, because they initially had received John. They had gone out to see him. Remember when John was baptizing in the wilderness. Verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So notice how, what Jesus does here. here. You want corroborating witnesses. My testimony by itself is not good enough for you as human judges of who I am, claiming to be God, the son. My testimony is not good enough. So let me start with the one that you would recognize. Let's start with John. He testified to who I am. So he starts with John the Baptist and then he moves um, from John the Baptist to his own works. His works testify to himself. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So now he's building on, he's building on of the, the base one of John. He says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness. That's kind of the same testimony word. They bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus says, the works that I'm doing bear witness. That's the second witness. Here's the third witness. Verse 37, and that is God the Father. I think he alludes to this one in verse 32. There's another who bears witness about me. And I think he's saying, this is the big one. This is a big, important one. Verse 37, and the father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus is getting a little salty now with these religious leaders who are interrogating him. 
you do not believe the one he has sent and because your his word is not even abiding you and he builds on that one for the fourth one here's the fourth one the scriptures so he's saying you know and and you may not recognize that the father is born witness about who i am but the father is the one who's authored uh, god has authored the scriptures that you so highly value, and let's look and see what they have to say. You, you claim to value the scriptures, and yet you're missing something very important. So here's the last one. Oh, I should be clicking through here. God, uh, God, John the Baptist, Jesus' own work is number two, God the Father's number three, and then the scriptures are number four. Notice what Jesus says in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. The scriptures bear witness about me. And then he says, and yet you who so highly value the scriptures, you study the scriptures, you think that in the scriptures you can have eternal life, and yet you don't come to the one that the scriptures are all about. Verse 40, you refuse, or some translations here like the, the Legacy Standard Bible says, you're, you're unwilling. Your wills are so hard and dead sent against it, against me, that even though the scriptures would testify about me, you refuse to come to me as the source of life. The scriptures are bearing witness. The scriptures don't, they contain the one, uh, they contain the words of life because they're pointing to the giver of life. They're going to the scriptures and trying to get life from the scriptures while missing the one that the scriptures are pointing to. It's a very important passage here that Jesus is saying because he's saying all of the Old Testament is pointing to him. It's very similar to how Luke records the words of Jesus at the end of uh, Luke's gospel. Just flip back a few pages. You could see in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, you have the disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is after Jesus was, was crucified. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, comes up to them. And he kind of says, hey, what are you guys talking about? Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and does not know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus, playing along, Oh, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But he, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And, by, and, and indeed, it's, it's the third day since all of these things have happened. Then they keep talking, and then Jesus says in verse 25, he says to them, Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And then verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Genesis to Malachi. Jesus is there on every page. 
And he begins to expound this. And oh man, I wish you could have been there to, to hear what he was saying. And they stayed the night in that village. And then Jesus breaks bread with them and then he disappears from their sight. And then they said in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? To see Jesus in all of the scriptures? He does this again as he meets with his disciples in the room. He goes, what do you guys have to eat around here? And they gave him a piece of fish, verse 42. And he... He took it before them and ate, and then verse 44, and he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, meaning before his crucifixion, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I like that last one is because it includes the, the Jewish name for the, their, the Jewish Bible is called the Tanakh, which is an acronym for, you know, the Torah, the Nevaim, and Ketuvim. It means the, the law, the prophets, and the writings, which would usually be associated with the largest book, which would be the Psalms. Jesus is giving the entire name of all of it there. The, the laws of Moses, and the prophets, and the writings. This is all of it. And so this is the tragedy there in verse 39 and 40 is that they do not recognize the witnesses that Jesus himself, it's kind of like Jesus went to, you want to give me, you want me to testify to who I am. You have these accusations against me. Well, here's my word and I give you my word, but I recognize, hey, the legal system doesn't just work on my word alone. So let me use some of your, as a matter of fact, give me your witness list. And I'll select witnesses off of your list and show you that they testify about me. That's what Jesus is doing here. This is how he ends. Notice in verse 46 and 47. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's amazing. Jesus is leaning hard in here, and he's not denying. He's... he's clearly explaining his identity as the son of God, as the son of man, as the eternal son. They're accusing him of claiming to be God. Some people have said, I know there's even some Christians, progressive Christians that say, Jesus never really said that he is God. And I just kind of look, you are not reading. Did you not hear what he just said? He's just defended himself. Yes, he doesn't say it in those words. Yes, I am God. He said, yeah. And yet they refuse to believe. So lastly, let's the, that's the bulk of Jesus' defense here. But I think at the very end, it has something in here that answers a more of a topical question. And the question is, why do people not believe in Jesus? Here, these guys become a picture example of why people don't believe Jesus' words and his testimony. Let me give you three things I think that stand out. Why people don't believe in Jesus. First, people do not will to believe in Jesus. They do not desire to believe in Jesus. They have no desire to come to Christ. 
in their fallen and unregenerate state. Apart from the, the active grace of God, people, people do not, in their sinful state, have as a function of their will to want to come to Jesus. Jesus says this strongly elsewhere in John chapter 6, verse uh, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and then I will raise him up on the last day. John chapter 6. Look at John chapter 6, verse um, 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Or later in John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, or all people meaning all nationalities. This doesn't mean every single individual. We'll get to that. People do not inherently desire this. And notice you see this in verse 40. Jesus says, you had the scriptures. You understand them. You could break them up and parse them out and outline them and show, you know, uh, sentence diagram the entire Old Testament. You guys are pros at that, and yet you could do all of that and then won't come to me. And it's not because you're not smart enough. It's not because you're not clever enough. It's not because you don't are, are illiterate and you can't read. It's because you do not desire it. Verse 40, yet you refuse. You are unwilling. You refuse to come to me to have life. Paul, Paul notes this. In Ephesians, he talks about it's our nature. By nature, mankind is at enmity with God. By our very nature. Nobody comes into this world neutral and then falls into one of two camps. You start in the world as an enemy. It's built into your DNA as an enemy of God. And you need the miraculous work of God to transform you. So that you now become willing. He has to make you, give you, take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh like Ezekiel says. And then that heart of flesh now can will to come to Christ. But in its, in its base state, cannot. How, what an amazing bit of good news that is. Because if you did come to Christ and you've repented of your sins and you've believed him, it's because God did a miracle, literally did a miracle. He changed your nature. Paul elsewhere says in Romans chapter one that it's our minds are dead set against God. We suppress the truth about God. It's everywhere evident that there is a God and he is powerful and almighty. And yet we go, mm, no, like trying to push a fully inflated beach ball all the way underwater. It's going to keep popping back up. And yet, we try to reject it. So that's the first thing that we have to understand about why is it that people don't receive Christ? It's because at their very nature, they have no desire to. 
apart from a miraculous work of the grace of God in Christ. So people do not desire it. And then here's number two. People do not love God. It's pictured right here, I think, in these religious leaders of all the people who should know better. They don't. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. Verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. This is related to the first one. People don't, by their nature, love God. And why is that? Fundamentally, it is because we love our sin too much. It takes the miraculous work of God to recreate us and make us new, to uh, adjust our loves and our desires, and to put to death the loves that we have for sin and unrighteousness. And then for him to generate more deeper love for him and the obedience that flows from that. So people do not desire to come to Christ. People do not love God. And then lastly, the third one. People love and desire glory from men more. People desire love and desire honor from other people. People love and desire approval from other people over the approval that comes from God. Look at verse 43 and 44, where Jesus again saying to these religious leaders, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And which is really interesting, he's like, I'm, I'm coming with the highest levels of authority here. I have all of this testimony witness. I pulled right from your testimony, your witness list. And I'm showing you who I am. And you do not receive me, even though I come in my father's name. And it's the irony is the second half of that verse. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. This is probably the, the, uh, the pharisaical debates. Like so-and-so rabbi quoting from so-and-so rabbi and so-and-so. Oh, you know, ooh, I'll, I'll, I'll perk my ears up and now I'll pay attention. Jesus is saying, I'm coming in the Father's name and you don't, rec- you, don't, you don't receive me. And you've had such a lower bar before. You've received others. But here's, here's the key verse. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Fundamentally, if you were to say even what's the, the most fundamental of the, the major reasons why people don't believe God, Jesus, Jesus says, how can you believe when you don't receive, you will not seek glory that comes from God, but you will receive glory from one another, Right? You're looking at all of humanity and that becomes your main concern. To whom can I get honor? To whom can I get approval? From whom can I get recognition? From whom can I seek glory? If it's on a human plane, you're already establishing that you cannot believe in God. You, how can you believe, Jesus says, 
if you're seeking glory from others instead of, excuse me, receiving glory from others instead of seeking the glory that comes from God. Not the glory that you give to God, the glory that God offers you, that he alone offers you. The glory that comes from believing in the Son, hearing his voice. The glory that comes that on the last day you will indeed be raised to life. That you will have eternal life with the Father forever. That's glory. And if you don't seek that first above all things and you preference seeking glory or receiving glory from, from men from one another, then how can you believe? This is Jesus' testimony. It's an amazing passage. That right on the heels of this, now he's launched into controversy that's going to last for several chapters here where he's really going to drive home his identity. And indeed, he gives his own testimony of who he is. His unique relationship with the Father, the authority that he's been granted to be the one who's going to give judgment and that he is the one through whom life eternal from the Father will come. But in the face of an unbelieving opposition, he cites all of the evidence. Jesus didn't walk onto the stage of history and said, hey, believe me, I'm the Son of God. He'd actually established a pattern of it, of evidence Uh, throughout the Jewish scriptures, throughout redemptive history, so that when he comes in, he can actually point to all of it and say, "I'm I'm the next and final step. So the challenge is, do you believe? Do you believe? If your desire to receive glory from others, that's going to be, a that's the major obstacle to it. If you desire your sin more than you love God, that's an obstacle. And if you haven't been changed in your nature, that's an obstacle. If that's you, maybe the Lord is convicting you now by his spirit and by his word that maybe maybe I haven't been changed. Has my nature really changed? Have I sought Jesus for all sorts of worldly sorts of things? Has your nature been changed? Have you been converted by God? If you're feeling that prompting, I am then I would just say right now your prayer is, Lord Jesus, I believe. Help me. But for those who have received Christ, we know that we have been transformed. We know that we have been made new. We All we could do is point to the amazing grace that he has given us. Then let us rejoice in who Jesus is here. Let the, the truths about who Jesus has claimed to be here be our meditation because he is our focus. He is the one that we come to for eternal life. May he be our 
May he be our supreme love and desire. Amen? Amen. Um, Let's close in a word of prayer. And then we will um, stand together to sing the doxology. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we marvel at your word. We thank you so much for the truly amazing gift that it is and how we have from dozens of authors written over 1,500 years, we have this testimony to the work that you are doing and have done in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we pray for those who do not know, that, we, that do not know Christ. Maybe they even are a part of churches, are a part of uh, studies. Um, maybe they haven't been to church in a while. Maybe they grew up into church. But God, I pray for those that we know, that we have interactions with, um, that, that if they do not truly know you and have not been converted by you, we would ask that you would do that. You would give them a new heart. You would take the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. You would, that, that you would miraculously turn them from being your enemies to being your children. And that you would enable them to, to believe in your son, Jesus. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and who he truly is, the eternal son of God, the son of man, the one who is going to come and judge the living and the dead and yet who is a merciful Savior to all who hear his voice and believe in his words. God, help us to do that. We ask that you would do that by your spirit that you've given and placed within us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said.